Bibles, Haggai chapter 2. Um, this is our last passage in the book of Haggai, and uh, Tracy is going to come and she's going to read the scripture for us. Let's stand together um, as we read God's word. Haggai chapter 2, beginning at verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to, D- to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brothers. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my, ser- my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you um, for this time in your word, and Lord, in particular, in this um, minor prophet. Lord, how you have been directing our attention, Lord, to things that maybe we were not aware of um, that took place many years ago, but Lord, even apply to our lives today. And Lord, I ask that even as we come to this, this last passage, Lord, that you would give us um, ears that will hear, hearts that desire to understand. Um, Lord, would your Holy Spirit give clarity, Lord, to this very difficult passage of Scripture, and Lord, allow me as your messenger to simply reflect your truth, Lord. If there is something that, that seems to be fuzzy, Lord, would you make it clear, but Lord, would you have your way with us? Would you drive home, Lord, the truth that you want us to hear this morning from your word? And may it strengthen us, Lord, to do what you've called us to do in the context in which you've placed us. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, as we, as we come to this, this last message in um, this short minor prophet, I want you to notice it says the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. And you're like, well, it's kind of confusing. I thought this was the fourth message in this book. Well, it's the fourth message, but this is the second message on the same day, okay? So you have, you have two messages that God gives on the same day. One of them is to the whole congregation, and this one in particular is specifically given to one man. In fact, all the other messages are given to the whole remnant people. This is the one specifically that is given to one man, and that one man is Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah. Let's just look, first of all, at verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying. So I think it's important for us to recognize here that when God calls his people to a particular task, to a particular responsibility, which is what he does here, the rebuilding of the temple, he also calls leaders to lead those people. And each time um, God spoke to the remnant of uh, Judah, he is also speaking to Zerubbabel. And I am sure that as the leader participating with the congregation in their response, in their understanding of what God is saying, he's also thinking to himself, okay, but I also have to lead these people. And friends, that is not a small thing. As the leader, he needed to take responsibility along with the remnant about their neglect of building the temple. He needed to consider God's message and repent, even himself. He needed to mobilize the people to assess the situation and go up to the hills, bring wood, and build. He needed to affirm that God was with him and to have his spirit stirred by God. He needed to be encouraged by God, that even though the temple didn't look like much compared to Solomon's temple, it would one day far surpass Solomon's temple. He needed that encouragement. He needed to be strong, to work, and to not fear. And he needed to be reminded that his holiness was not to be measured by the progress of the building of the temple, that His holiness was measured by virtue of God himself and what God declared. 
And friends, the bottom line is this. Leadership is difficult. Leadership is difficult. He needed to listen. He needed to believe. He needed to act on what God said. But he also needed to motivate those people who were under his care of leadership to do what God was calling them to do. And so the reality is, friends, as we come to this passage, we need to recognize that leaders need encouragement too. Leadership is not an easy place to be. And the responsibility here as a leader is not just to tell people what to do or kind of show up when they're doing it, but it is also to motivate them and keep them motivated and keep them focused on on what the the job is and why that job is important and, and, and how to go about it in a way that would truly glorify God. So we could say it this way. Leadership comes as a package deal with the necessity to lead people as well as to be responsible for them and to them. So Zerubbabel had a responsibility to the people, but he also has a responsibility to God in that place of leadership. Now, leaders are necessary. There's always a weight of pressure on the shoulder of leaders. So Zerubbabel, we could say, he had to worry about the building of the temple. He had to worry about governing the people. He had to to worry about training up in leadership with Joshua, who was the high priest. So working with other people who are also in positions of leadership, different kind of leadership, but working together. Overcoming the enemy was also one of the things that he would have to deal with. And of course, you, you throw it ahead to the time of Nehemiah a number of years later when they're building the walls of Jerusalem and there's great opposition that came to to really discourage the people. And again, Nehemiah as a leader had to step up and do the same things. Now we shift out of that context and bring it to our context and think about it this way. Church leaders have to worry about a lot of things too. Enabling the work of God. Seeing that the work of God is going on in a way that would glorify God. Caring for the flock. Teaming up with those who have different areas of responsibility for that church along with the You might want to say the pastors or the elders of that church. Understanding the error of the enemy. Understanding what truth is so that that can permeate through the whole of the body. And then there's leadership in the home. Dads need to take leadership to step up and realize that responsibility that God has put on their shoulders to lead the family. And not only that, dads also need to join arms with their wives to carry out the responsibility of caring for their children and and nurturing them in the the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so also being mindful of the various inroads that Satan has to get to that family. And I tell you, you know, it's a daunting thing, isn't it? It's not an easy thing to lead a church because there's all sorts of stuff out there and there's all sorts of stuff going on inside. It's not easy to lead a family because the challenge is great. The context is difficult. And so you're doing your best to say, God, I want to I glorify you. I want to take this responsibility of leadership, but, but we need encouragement to do that. And so clearly leaders have an extremely daunting task and clearly leaders need encouragement for what God has called them to do. So what has God called you to do? What kind of leadership responsibilities do you have? Well, you might say, okay, I'm a parent, I'm a husband. Um, You might say, I'm not married, and I just have a job. Um, There is also, you might say, even if you're going to go to the nth degree here, there is the question of how are you leading your life? That's the kind of vernacular we use. And that basically means, am I going to lead my life in a direction where God wants me to go? And there's a, there's a stewardship of the things that God has given me. So am I going to actually lead in a right way in my life? You want to go that way, you can. The point is, we all fit in some category of leadership. In fact, one day, someone might ask you, hey, could you help out by, for example, you know, making sure that someone is taking care of as far as food for the next two weeks and organizing that in the church? Boom, automatically put in leadership. Ah, what's going to happen? Right? The reality is leadership is there. And we all, at times, if we're not normally in a position of leadership, will take positions of leadership. And so it's easy to feel very 
overwhelmed for the task that God has called you to. And the enemy seems big. The enemy seems powerful. The enemy seems um, to, be, to be able to deceive very easily and draw you away from what God has called you to. And so, so we need here some encouragement. So as we focus back now into this passage in, in Haggai, I want to say it this way. God gives Zerubbabel three promises that lay a foundation of hope for the daunting task ahead of him. And we all need the same promises as we seek to lead our lives. So in this last message, let's put it this way for us. God encourages his leaders with three promises that will give them hope. Because if you're a leader, you need hope. You need to be able to look out and say, this is what God wants me to do, and there is hope for what I'm doing. You know, you're, you're trying to raise your family, and it just seems like it's all chaotic, and you're looking down the road, and you're like, oh, man, how in the world is this even going to come into anything? You need hope. You know, you're, you're leading a church, and maybe, there, maybe all of a sudden there's a, there's a struggle in the church, and you're, you're consumed with that, and you're like, Lord, how in the world can we move on from this? We need hope. So the question then is, what is hope? Well, hope is not empty hopefulness, like, like that elusive butterfly you're chasing around with that net trying to grab. Hope is much more certain. It's much more concrete than that. I like to put it this way. Hope is a box full of God's promises. When God says, I'm giving you hope, it's like he's giving you a present and you open up the present. And what makes that hope is that inside this box are all sorts of promises undergird what God is calling you to do. And as leaders, call to do what God is giving us to do, whatever that responsibility is. Building a temple, we're not doing that. But raising a family, you know, doing what God has called us to do in the church and various other things, he is putting in us the reality that there is hope for us as leaders as we are called to do those things. And so there's going to be three promises that flow out of this text. Now, let me just be honest with you. This is not an easy passage of Scripture. When you get to prophetical books, a lot of times it's confusing. A lot of times you're like, what in the world is really going on here? And so as we go through here, you might have that kind of a kind of weird epiphany like, huh? Um, you, you'll be in good company. Um, I did that a lot of times this week, okay? And hopefully I've got some clarity in that, but let's do our best to allow God's Word here to fashion and shape the responsibilities he's called us to by first looking at, at how, he, how he encourages uh, Zerubbabel with the responsibility he's been given as a leader and then try and transition that over to the things that he's called us to do. So first of all, I want you to notice God's promise concerning the nations. God's promise concerning the nations. And this is the bulk of our text. This is verses 21 through 22. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, what I'm calling a divine shaking. Okay? A divine shaking. This is not a dance going on in heaven. Okay? This is an expression that God is using to say, I am going to create upheaval in the political, economic, social foundations of this earth. I am going to infiltrate these nations that are opposed to me, and I am going to shake them silly. He divinely is going to do that. And he's going to use all of his creation, the heavens and the earth, to do that. And this is an apocalyptic language, so it's looking ahead, way down the road. So Zerubbabel is not, you know, is not expecting something immediately to happen, but he's, he's recognizing this is down the road. Here is kind of a big picture promise, a big picture reality. I am going to shake the nation. Well, notice what else. I'm calling this divine destruction. And I'm going to shake the, the nations. What's going to happen as a result of that? The divine shaking will result in the destruction and overthrow of the strength of those kingdoms. 
And the idea there is the military power of those kingdoms. The chariots and the horses are symbolic of their military strength and power. If this was written today, you know, this would be, you know, nuclear missiles and, you know, air, air power and how many tanks and all that kind of stuff, all right? But this is in their language. This was like the epitome of power, how many chariots and horses you had. So there's this divine destruction. But notice also there is going to be the mechanism that God uses, and it's divine civil war. Divine civil war. Notice what it says here. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of what? His brother. Now, if Zerubbabel um, was, you know, rooted in God's word, the Old Testament, I'm sure, very likely, that when he heard this, there were a couple of stories from the Old Testament that came to mind. One of them would be the story of Gideon. Gideon and his 300 men. Turn to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. And in Judges chapter 7, you will find Gideon took his 300 men. God whittled them down. He had this massive army, but he whittled them down to 300. And they went and surrounded the Midian camp. I'm sure you know this story from your Sunday school classes. All right? And at a particular point in time, all of them surrounding this camp were to smash. They had these, uh, these vessels, and inside these vessels were lamps. They would smash the vessels, and these lamps would show up. Okay? Then they would blow the trumpets. They all had a vessel, a trumpet. They'd blow the trumpets, and then they would all say, for the, for the Lord and for Gideon. And notice what verse 22 of Judges 7 says. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as uh, Beth Shittah toward Zerah as far as the board of Abelama and Tabith. I didn't even say that because it's just a long way away, right? The point is, God caused them to fight amongst themselves, and his own people didn't have to do any fighting. It's an incredible story. There's another one I'd like to draw your attention to, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And this is the, the people of, of, of Israel under Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. Um, chapter 20. And let me just kind, of, just kind of paint a picture of what's going on. Um, um, God's people were now under threat from three armies. The first army was Ammon, the second one is Moab, and then there was Mount Seir. And they far outnumbered God's people. And so there was a sense in which God's people recognized that they were doomed. They did not have any ability to take on this army and to win. And actually, you'll find that in this passage, there was this great revival that takes place among the people. That the presence of these armies caused a stirring in the heart of the people that they came and they began to repent and they restored their relationship with God. And they started to walk now. They started to walk toward where these armies were. And it was up the hill. And they're thinking, what are we going to do? And our end is coming. And of course, the message there is keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on, uh, on God. And as they got to the brink of this hill where the armies were supposed to be, when they looked out, what they saw were a bunch of dead people. Why? Notice now 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 33. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. What a great day, right? Let's join together in Moab and Ammon. Let's take on Mount Seir. Let's destroy them. Let's, let's just kind of wipe them off the planet. Yeah, and when we're done with that, let's just kill each other. I mean, that is God at work. Protecting his people in their hour of need. What seemed impossible, what seemed daunting, 
God was able to overcome. And so when he talks about, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother, it's, it's a reminder of what God has already done, but it's also a, a reminder of what God is yet to do down the road. And it is a means by which God is establishing in Zerubbabel this, this wonderful promise about his sovereignty. And here is, here's, here's one of the points here, and we can say it this way. In the end, evil will not prevail. Those who are opposed to God will not prevail. Now, although it's true, Psalm 20, verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So the point then is that the God of Judah is the Lord of the whole earth. He will not allow evil to prevail. So we need to be reminded that he is totally and completely sovereign over the nations. Totally and completely sovereign over the nations. We also need to be reminded that he will even use other nations to destroy each other. Now we see this theme in other portions of Scripture. Why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And as you're turning there, I just want you to think about what we've read in Haggai. Because God says, I'm about to do something. I'm about to shake the heavens. And then I'm going to destroy. And I'm going to overcome. And I'm going to bring down. But the point is, and sometimes we don't get this, but he says, I am about to do this. All right? The emphasis is on I. I will. I will do these things. And we find that in Isaiah chapter 40. Let's begin at verse 17. 40, sorry, verse 15. Look at God's sovereign power over the nations. Look at how they compare to him. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as what? Nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. <laughs> They're less than nothing. In a similar way, God is saying to Zerubbabel here, listen, you have seen the might of Babylon you have heard about the power of Assyria, and you are now under the dominion of Persia. Isn't it interesting? In the course of 60 to 70 years, there have been these huge empires that have turned over during this time. But I want you to know, God says, that I am the God of the universe. These nations around you are like a drop of water in a bucket to me. They are the dust of the scales, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and, I, and the mighty kingdoms of the earth with all their thinking power, all the things that they think will, will be able to stand against me will be totally undone. They'll be totally destroyed. They'll be totally brought down. Why? Because I am sovereign over the nations. Now go to verse 23. Talking about God who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. What Zerubbabel, the leader of this motley remnant in Judah, such meager, small gathering of people with seeming incredibly puny task before them in light of this incredible empires that they're in right now, what he needed was a healthy reminder that God is sovereign over the nations. There is no nation that is acting and moving and doing what they're doing except that God is allowing it and that they are part of his plan to accomplish his purposes. As Daniel 4.17, 
tells us that God desires that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It's all God's doing. It's all in his hand. It's all part of his ongoing plan. So scripture is screaming at us, it is God who controls the nations. And friends, it's not just a promise for the people back in Zerubbabel's day. It's a promise for us also. There is a big picture promise here that we can bring into our responsibilities, into the things that we are facing. But let's just pause for a moment. Let's look over you know, the 20th century and a little bit of the 21st century and just think about how, how man has set himself up and how he thinks that he has this wonderful empire in the making. Well, the first one is pretty obvious in Germany in 1943. A man by the name of Adolf Hitler convinced the population of that country. And here's what he said. The German form of life is definitely determined for the next thousand years. And with that statement, he formed what he considered to be the thousand-year Reich, the third Reich, the third reign. Now, as, as awful and as impactful as Hitler was to devastate Europe, his reign lasted 12 years. Now, friends, 12 years is a blip compared to what God has in store. The things that Hitler did under his care were awful. They were terrible. But his reign lasted 12 years. After that Second World War, of course, the Soviet Union, they entrenched themselves behind what we know as the Iron Curtain, and much of Europe was behind that curtain. For about 44 years or so, that Iron Curtain was there, but the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. And that slowly resulted in governments seceding power and just walking out and allowing those countries to be remade, so to speak. Now, I realize there was a lot of turmoil even in those transitions, but the point is, you know, communism is the way to, that, that life is going to go on. This is going to be here to stay. 44 years? Now, I realize it's still in places around the world. But in light of, in light of God's plan, it's nothing it's small. It's powerful right now. But it is small compared to what God has in his plan, in his time frame. In the Middle East over the past 30 or so years, there's been tons of turmoil, hasn't there? The Shah of Iran was overthrown and replaced by the Ayatollah. Some of you remember that. Saddam Hussein, who perched himself up as a self-made uh, you know, ruler and, and leader in that area was finally ousted. The leadership in Egypt right now is just going through incredible turmoils. You don't even know who's going to be in power from one day to the next. And then you have, you know, Syria and all the stuff that's going on there. And then just recently, just the, the stuff that's happening in Kenya. And then we haven't heard too much about it recently, but the ongoing conflict in Chechnya. There's stuff going around all around this world. And there are people that are, you know, jumping up and there are regimes that they think are going to be, this is the way it's going to be and we're going to have control. And friends, let us not forget about a place that we love, the United States of America. We're about, what, 225 or so years or more old, officially. Is that right? Is that about right? Yeah, got my American history right, right? 225 years? Anyone ever been to Europe? You go to a building, it's like, how long has this been here? Well, like a thousand or something years. Well, let's go, to a, let's go to a historical site in the States. How long has this been here? Like, you know, a hundred years? Big difference. And friends, you know, we're actually worried about the state of our nation. We're worried about things that are happening and how things are eroding in our nation. Listen, there's only one kingdom that will last forever. And it's God's kingdom. And as much as we love our country, the reality is, friends, most of us have not suffered or endured like other people have around this world. And Judah and Zerubbabel and the people that came out of captivity, they were rubbing shoulders with difficulty. 
They understood what oppression was like. Now, granted, they were given some freedoms to go back. And here they are. And they're trying to do what God has called them to do. So what is it that we need to see? We need to see that God, God is sovereign over our responsibilities. Now, we're not called here to rebuild the temple, but we are called to certain responsibilities, right? God has given us things that we need to lead in, and he's, he's saying to us, listen, what I've given you, I am also sovereign over. And to be sure, there is going to be opposition. To be sure, there are going to be struggles. To be sure, there's going to be difficulty. So God has called us to be a church that is faithful to his word and to his gospel. And that is a difficult responsibility. It means that we're going to have to teach that God's word is important to God. And if it's important to God, then it should be important to us. We need to be purposeful and clear about presenting a clear and complete gospel, showing both God's wrath that leads to eternal death, as well as God's love that leads to eternal life. It means that we need to be on the lookout for false teaching, both outside and inside the church. It means that we need to be realistic that there will be those who oppose what we're doing. It shouldn't come as any surprise. But we should also be mindful that as we're pressing on trying to do what God's called us to do, that God is sovereign over all of our circumstances. He is sovereign over our context. God knows what's going on in Castro Valley. God knows what's going on with the 580 corridor. He understands. He is fully aware, but he has placed gateway right here. And we can look around and say, well, who are we? I mean, you know, on a good day, we may have 115 with 30 kids. How in the world are we going to have any impact for the kingdom of God? We're so small. And you look around, there's all sorts of different churches around. I do not mean to say anything bad about them, but we just kind of look and say, you would expect the big churches to be the way that God is going to work. But listen, if God has called us to be a church, we are his church. And if we are his church, then he is going to work through his church. And so we must believe that that's true. And in believing that's true, we must also recognize that any opposition that we have is just there because it's all part of God's plan. Babylon was there. Was that part of God's plan? The Assyrians were there. Was that part of God's plan? Right? Persians were there. Was that part of God's plan? Absolutely. All of, all of these empires are part of God's plan because he was working his will through their their desires and their purposes to accomplish his will. <laughs> and he gets the last laugh because he is sovereign over the nations. And friends, the same is true about our marriages. Making sure that our marriages are committed to looking like Christ and the church is a difficult, daunting responsibility. It means that we must not act and think like the world. It means that we need to be purposeful to understand and live, uh, uh, out, live out our husband and wife roles that are fleshed out by God's word and not feel weird or strange or ashamed, but believe that this is what God says. It means that even though our culture is soft on things like divorce, that we must not be. It means that although Seeking to develop a marriage that honors God is a daunting task in a degenerating society. We can be encouraged that he is sovereign over that whole context so that what he has called you to, you can do. It's not a you can do, you know, you can, you can, you can do. No, this is a because of God, you can do. The same is true about our families, raising our children. You drop your kids off at school. Whatever school you go to, you, know, you hope that the influence they're getting at that school is going to be a good influence. Just talking with someone about sports. You know, our kids playing sports. When you drop your kids off you know, to a sports team where they're having practice, depending on the context, you know, what kind of influence is that child having? Now, we, you know, we don't want to live in this really, really tight bubble that we, you know, we're not able to even function in this world, but there's a reality that as parents, we want to be mindful about the 
influences that we are allowing into our children's lives. And that's a daunting thing. It seems like the, the current of, of culture is flowing so strongly in a direction that is opposed to God's purposes. And so we, we have to be reminded that God, even of those situations, is completely in control. And so we can do what he's called us to do. We need to trust him in it. His sovereignty, however, is not a guarantee that there will be no conflicts, no opposition, and no struggles. But it means that we can rest in the fact that he is aware of all that is happening and that he is working through the times of blessing and suffering that we may go through. You know, it is good for us to be reminded of the old Southern Gospel song. I've read the back of the book and we win. All right, that's Southern theology in pure form that says, you know what? God is sovereign over this world, over the nations, and you can trust him. And it is a promise that undergirds your hope to live your life for his glory. That's the first promise. That's the promise concerning the nations. Secondly, God's promise concerning Zerubbabel specifically. Now we shift gears, verse 23. On that day, again, apocalyptic language. I might say prophetical language, looking ahead, looking beyond that particular moment. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now what does all this mean? Now, just, just compare what we, we just read to the previous couple of verses. To the nations, he says, I will shake you. I will overthrow you. I will destroy you. I will bring you down. But to Zerubbabel, he says, I will take you. I will make you, for I have chosen you. God is saying something specifically and directly to Zerubbabel that would be an encouragement to Zerubbabel, that would stir him up, that would give him perspective, that would help him for the task that is before him. So what God is saying to Zerubbabel is this, you will be secure in my promise. Why? Because I am stubbornly persistent in keeping my promises to my people. Let me say that again. God says, I am stubbornly persistent in keeping my promises to my people. How is that fleshed out in the life of Zerubbabel? What is all this stuff about signet rings and servants and all that kind of stuff? Well, let's do a little bit of a historical survey here. We're told two things in this passage that we need to, first of all, take note of. First of all, he is Zerubbabel, my servant. And this is kind of a title that identifies that, that God has, cho has chosen Zerubbabel to be his instrument for that moment. My servant, Zerubbabel. There's something even messianic about that expression, my servant, that goes back to David. Secondly, he is the son of Shealtiel. And that just reminds us then who Zerubbabel was in relation to his descendants. So there's something going on here that's saying, okay, God has specifically chosen him, but there's also this descendant kind of relationship going on. So Zerubbabel was the grandson of a man by the name, a king by the name of Jehoiachin. If you're thinking of names for your children, don't choose this one, okay? Jehoiachin was not a good king. Um, he ruled for like three months. He was the last official king of Judah, and he was taken into captivity in 590 B.C. He was captured by the Assyrians. His eyes were plucked out, and he was thrown into prison. Eventually, though, because the Assyrians were a little, little different, he was, he was put into a kind of like a house arrest context. Now, what's significant is that 500 years prior to that, um, God had made a promise to David, the king of Israel. Now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we just want to trace a little bit of what's going on here to understand why God would speak to Zerubbabel the way he's speaking to him. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verse 16, it says this, And your house and your kingdom, he's speaking here to David, about David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, anyone read that? What's next? Forever. How long is that? As the old song says, it's a long, long time, right? Forever before me, your throne shall be established, how long? Forever. And God affirmed that promise to David in Psalm 89. Turn to Psalm 89. Look at verse 34 and following. Psalm 89. The psalmist here says this. And God, of course, is speaking here through the psalmist. God speaking. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness... It's a, pretty, it's a pretty strong way of saying something, right? By my holiness, I'm saying this, I will not lie to David. His offering shall endure for how long? Forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Wow. David and his his line of, of kings would be established forever. Wow. So when Jehoiachin is carted off to Assyria, Judah is left scratching their heads, wondering what's going on. Now, let's just kind of jump ahead in Haggai and just kind of hold that thought. In Haggai, God speaks to Zerubbabel here saying, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. What? What was the signet ring? It was an engraved seal worn by a king. It was used to imprint in wax, typically. When you had a letter, you would seal it with wax, and you would put your seal, your imprint. Now, that seal was very precious to you. It would be the equivalent today of maybe a credit card, your driver's license, it's actually probably more like your social security number, okay? And a seal would either be on a ring or be on a cylinder that you would keep around your neck because if someone else got a hold of your seal, guess what could happen? They could write a lot of letters, pretend it's from you, right, and use your seal. So when someone got a letter, what they would look at is, who is it from? How would I know who it's from? Because of the seal that would prove that the content of this letter has been approved by the person who is sealing it, okay? So, um, now, to understand the significance of what God is saying to Zerubbabel, we need to go back to another book, Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22, and we're going to begin in verse 24. And I realize we're jumping around a bit, but we need to kind of connect some of these dots so that we can see why God is saying to Zerubbabel what he's saying. And I want you to notice also that in the Old Testament history books, sometimes different names are used to describe the same person. And what we're going to find here is that um, Jehoiachin is called here in uh, Jeremiah 22, Coniah. Okay? I don't know if it's short for Jehoiachin, um, kind of like in Russian, you know, for Alexander, the short is what? Sasha. You figure that one out, okay? But here he's called Coniah. So verse 24, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, or Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were the signet ring of my right hand, yet I would tear you off, he says. This is God speaking. And give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country. Don't ever say that to anyone, all right? Where you were not born, and there you shall die. All right, you get the point? This is strong language. I am rejecting you. Continue reading. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Ooh. 
Is this man Kenai a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into the land that they do not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That's a big ouch. And again, as God prophesies here and as God speaks about Jehoiachin, Judah is wondering what's happening with our nation. Now we know in, because of the story of Haggai and the, the foundation of that story, the historical context of that story, that Judah now was present in Jerusalem. There's a remnant there. And so God is beginning to restore his, his Judah once again. But what about the line of David? What's going to happen there? Because that's pretty strong language. I mean, you go back there and he says, thus says the Lord, write this man as what? Childless. Childless. But amazingly, and in God's sovereignty, the grandson of wicked and rejected Jehoiachin is allowed to return to Judah to serve as governor. And his name is Zerubbabel. Now we can just read it. So, oh, yeah, okay, Zerubbabel's just a grandson, blah, blah, blah. When you think about what's all going on here, there's something significant. God not only is re- reestablishing Judah as a nation, but he is also coming to Zerubbabel and he's saying, listen, I will make you, I have uh, chosen you, and you will be my signet ring. So what's happening is this. We see the stubbornness of God's promise, even though it just seemed that God, by virtue of the disobedience of the king, would snuff out this line of David. God, through Zerubbabel, reestablishes that promise, revives that promise, restores that promise to its rightful place. And so here we see God's stubbornness in keeping his promises to his people, and in particular to the leader, Zerubbabel, and it is also true of us. So this is what God is saying to us. I don't care how terrible, how abysmal, and how bleak your situation seems to be. I will do what I have said I will do. Now, it's not just hope is just a box full of God's promises. Oh, those are nice little promises. No, when God says, I promise something, what does that mean? It will happen. And that is true for Zerubbabel. That is also true for us. Just, Just hear some of these passages that just speak about some of the promises, not all of them, right? Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is just standing firmly on a promise that he is sure of. Matthew 16.18, Jesus speaking, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not, might not, or I hope it doesn't. Will not. You can be sure that what God says is true. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Will. Not might. Will. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's promised language. John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where, you, where I am, you may be also. Again, a promise, a certainty, a truth that we hold on to that undergirds what he's called us to and gives us hope. John 10, 28, 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Now, I know there are people that say silly things, but I do not understand how people can say, 
um, as they come to this passage. Notice what it says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Yeah, but I can jump out of his hand. Do you, what? You, are you not catching the language and the power and the certainty of what God says? Well, you know, you know God will never do, but I can jump out. No, you can't. Because God says, you won't. And just to reinforce it, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Friends, we need to recognize, yes, that God is sovereign over our responsibility, but God is also stubborn in keeping his promises for his people. Now, whatever the promises are that we have, and there are just myriad of them, he will not fail in keeping those promises. And so whatever he's called you to, you trust in what he says, and you do it. You go to the mountain, you get the wood, you build. In other words, you do the things that God is calling you to do, You go back to the hard work of building that temple, taking on that responsibility, not being sidetracked to things that you want to do, but staying focused on what God is calling you to do. Trusting in his promises, trusting in his sovereignty, trusting in the stubbornness of his promises. The third thing now that we need to see is this. God's promise concerning Messiah, concerning Messiah. You say, oh, how do you get that? Well, there's something going on here that undergirds this passage. There's something that, that, is, that is driving through this passage that we must see. So what's amazing is that after the prophecy by God through Haggai concerning Zerubbabel is given, there is mostly silence. You know, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you my signet ring. Crickets, crickets. There's silence. You don't find really hardly anything more about Zerubbabel. A couple of references, but nothing you'd think. All right, you know, Zerubbabel is back there. He's taking the leadership, and the line of David is carrying on. There's no mention. It's like God gave this wonderful promise, and then the river of God's providence just dried up. For 60 years, the record of Scripture is silent. What happened to Zerubbabel? Did he give up on God? Did he wander away like his grandfather? What about the promise? I'd like to suggest to you that the river of God's providence did not dry up. It just moved underground. And I want you to think about that. Oftentimes, we only see what we can see. And sometimes we need to trust that what God says he is going to do He is doing even though we don't see it. When there is an appearance that his promises or his purposes or his plan is dried up, his river is still moving toward his goal. So we need to move outside of Haggai here and turn to Matthew's gospel where the promise given to Zerubbabel is now realized in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. God says to Zerubbabel, I will take you and make you and choose you. I will revive the promise to the uh, the lineage of David through you. And we see that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. And this is just a list of the genealogies, but just catch what's going on here. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, boom, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of of Abiad. And Abiad, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eliezer. And Eliezer, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The Messiah would come to us through the line and the legal line of David. It's interesting, you go to Luke, you get the different genealogies, and God orchestrates perfect harmony in the genealogy. So we have a legal line, and you have an actual, you might want to say, a physical line through 
um, through Mary. It's just absolutely incredible that God's promise about the Messiah coming through the lineage of David here is realized. And friends, there is no 21-gun salute. There's no fanfare. There's no razzmatazz, but Jesus shows up. Now, friends, God is often silent in carrying out his providence. God's silent providence is the ordinary way that God works his will. How do we do something here in the United States? Well, let's get a bunch of people together. Let's get a marketing strategy together. Let's get people mobilized so that people can see it and there's some happening thing and there's fireworks and there's streamers and there's noise and there's a band that people will know that we're here. That's not how God works. God works his providence silently. In other words, he works in ways that we in our natural humanity would not think about. His gospel goes forward into people's hearts, not necessarily in big, huge, demonstrative ways, but the seed gets in there because of a conversation or, or maybe they heard something. Maybe they, a friend shared some kind of a story and they're a believer. Just the ways that God works his will are not usually, typically, lots of noise and high recognition and lots of activity. And so, friends, God's ways are usually the way of silent providence. He goes about doing his, his will, accomplishing his will in obscurity. And so this should remind us that his ways are not our ways, right? It should also remind us that we need to trust in that, I want to say, still small voice, and not to be impressed with all the, the fanfare. It should remind us that we, we need to be driven to lean on him rather than the perceived powerful movements of God that man is attempting to conjure up. God's promise to Zerubbabel is threefold. I'm sovereign over the nations. I'm stubborn in keeping my promises. And I'm silent in accomplishing my purposes. And God's promise to us through his word to Zerubbabel is this. When it seems like what I have called you to is daunting, trust my sovereign hand to guide you and carry you through. It doesn't mean there's not going to be trouble or opposition. But I am present and I'm aware and I am God. To trust that what I have promised or what God has promised in life and in death will be realized. Friends, we need that. <laughs> because, you know, sometimes when we fall flat on our face with you know, that sin again, boy, Satan loves to come and say, see, I told you so. You're not, you're not the real deal. And we need to remind ourselves of God's promise to us and say, you know what? You can say all you want, Satan, but this is what God says. And to trust that even though you may not see God's hand at work, that it is at work. And it will accomplish everything that he said that it would do. Now, I want to take the last few minutes here and just kind of draw our attention now to the whole book and just kind of put all these things in perspective. I think, I think Haggai has been a fantastic study for us as a church as well as for individuals in the church. But I think as a church, there's some, there's some questions that we need to ask ourselves. I didn't anticipate this. Actually, when I jumped into Haggai. It's always the way it is. You don't always know exactly how God is going to take you and where he's going to take you, but I think there's some questions that we need to ask ourselves as Gateway Bible Church. First question is this. Are we eager to listen to God's word? <laughs> you say, I've been sitting here for an hour, Pastor Rod. I think, I think I'm eager to listen. I recognize that. I tell you, I commend you for it. You don't know how many pastors that I interact with that when I tell them just about the, the makeup of our service and why we do and how we do what we do and the fact that you guys are attentive for an hour of listening to me, they're like, man, I envy what you have. 
It is a testimony to your desire and your hunger for God's truth. But are we honestly considering our ways, taking close look at ourselves and asking some questions? Are we neglecting some area in our, in our uh, church, in our ministry, in what God has called us to? This is not a time to point your finger at someone else. It's time to point a finger at yourself and say, what is it that maybe I'm not listening to in God's word? Are we eager to listen? Are we eager and hungry to hear what God has to say? Secondly, are we eager then to repent when God shows us our sin? This is the second part of that first message. This is how the people responded. It took them a few days, but they all together came back and said, we will do this. We will repent. You are right. And friends, Gateway Bible Church needs to be a people that not only love God's word, but people who are desiring and willing and eager to repent of their sin. When God reveals it, just to rejoice over the fact that he is good to reveal it, but he's also good to forgive it, and he's good to restore you, and he's good to to shower more grace on you so that you can now deal with what you have before you. The third thing is this. Are we suffering from comparison delusion? You come in on a Sunday morning and you're like, you know, we had two guys leading worship this morning. I could be going to a church when they have, you know, 10 to 15 people leading abandoned worship. And you say, you know, why, wouldn't it be better? Friends, listen, I am committed to doing ministry with the people that God brings to this church. Our worship ministry is not to entertain. It's to glorify God. And God has blessed us with musicians, and he allows them to be used. And this is not a kind of a, a side little message on worship. The point is this. We must be careful that we're not comparing ourselves. No, we're not a huge church numerically. But I tell you what, as I've talked to pastors, there are people that envy what we have here because we want to be committed to the gospel. We want to be committed to God's truth. We don't want to be arrogant about it. We don't want to be honest about it and say, but this is what God's called us to. This is what he's called the church to. We must be doing these things. And not worry about, well, how many people did you have on Sunday? You have a hard enough time dealing with the people we have on Sunday. Especially the kids. (laughs) You know what? Rejoice over that. Rejoice over that. Let us not be deluded in our comparison to other ministries. Number four, are we guilty, even in what God is doing through Gateway Bible Church, are we guilty of outward religion? You know, I am a part of a church plant, you know, because somehow church plants are really more spiritual. It's more spiritual to be a part of something that's fresh and new. You see how how our thinking can adjust and change because we have a wrong idea of what God is doing. And we can just be a part of something for all the wrong reasons. And what started out maybe is a genuine love for God and a matter of responsibility and obedience to Him transitions into this form of outward religion that we have slipped into. Are we guilty of that? Next question, the last question. Do our leaders have hope for the responsibilities put on their shoulders? As we look ahead for what God has for us, as we develop people, as we develop the specific ministries that we desire to see grow and and, and mature, is there a hope put on the leaders of the church that God is going to work his will through the meager efforts, the purposeful, diligent, you know, attentive, meager efforts of God's people, are we going to have any impact in the kingdom? Do we have that hope? Or do we just kind of still function with this daunting thing like this is, this is too hard? You know, we're not really connecting we're not really impacting and friends those are those are legitimate questions to be asking 
And I would say as I sit and I talk with the leadership of our church that there is an excitement, there is an eagerness to see what God has next. Not in the sense of, oh, how many people are, is God going to bring us, but in the sense of what is God doing in our people that he has given us? How are we connecting with other people? You know, maybe who is coming, who, who needs to be here? We're rejoicing over the things that God has called us to do and how God is, is just working through them. And friends, we need to maintain the certainty of that hope for what God has called us to. And on a practical level, all of us need to ask those same questions about our own hearts. The same truths. And it's just kind of walking through Haggai. So with all those questions, we can feel the, the fire of God's word telling us to do something. To be strong. <laughs> to work. To not fear. And with that encouragement, just like God told the remnant people there, with this meager temple that needed to be repaired, needed to be restored, go to the mountains, bring wood, start building. For us, that is, do the things that you know you need to do to honor God in, in fleshing out the ministry, whether that's in the context of church, whether that's in the context of your family, whether that's in your own personal walk with Him. Be diligent. Get back to work. Flesh out the things that, that I have called you to. Lean, stand on my promises. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the way in which it feeds us and the way in, Lord, it, it exposes us, the way in which it comforts and counsels us. And Lord, I just ask that, that as we have gone through this book, that we would not just say, okay, we got done with Haggai, but that we would we would ponder, that we would consider our ways, that we would consider what brought us to the place we are today, where we are today, and, and where you are taking us. And Lord, are the things that we need to do individually that you're, you're drawing our attention to, that you're squeezing us with your Holy Spirit? Are there things that we as a church need to step back and say, aha, here's an area, here's a gap, Here's something we need to give attention to. Lord, would you give us clarity? Would you give us, Lord, a desire and a willingness to, to hear what you have to say? Lord, to repent when we need to repent. Lord, not to compare ourselves with other people, but to be focused on what you are calling us to do. And Lord, not to slip into some ritualistic kind of a relationship with you, but instead, Lord, to, to move ahead with the responsibility you've given us, with a certain hope that is resting and undergirded by the, 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 the steadiness, Lord, of your promises. Lord, we need you. At the same time, Lord, we want to serve you. So help us, Lord, to be the kind of church you are calling us to be. We ask this in your name. Amen.